You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite everyone to return to John chapter 20. This morning, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, uh, verse 21. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 21, 22, and 23 this morning. John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them, that is the disciples, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words given to us by our Lord and Savior. And in this case, upon his resurrection, he gives these words to the disciples who are gathered in the room. And Father, through them, it's given to us. Father, we desire to understand these things. They are difficult. And Father, we pray that you would be pleased to enlighten our minds and our hearts this morning, Father, opening up our hearts and minds to give us understanding of your word that, Father, we'd come to know. And through coming to know, Father, we would come to know you better. We'd come to see your commitment uh, to your people better. We'd come to see your covenant faithfulness better. We'd come to see your love better. We'd come to see your mercy and compassion, holiness, justice, and truth all the better. So, Father, we pray that you would bless us this morning uh, by blessing your word to our hearts and that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. When you think of uh, the Great Commission, in fact, sometimes in the church we throw words around and we don't bother to uh, define them, but I trust that probably most of us this morning, if I say Great Commission, uh, you probably uh, have a good idea what I'm talking about. But just in the event that there's someone who would not know what we're talking about, the Great Commission is really what the church is to be on about. What are we to be doing as a church? Has Jesus given us something to do? And the answer is yes. He's given us what the church has historically called the Great Commission. And that is to go throughout the entire world uh, and proclaim the gospel, right? And a lot of times when we think of the Great Commission, we think of a certain passage from Matthew, and I think it would be beneficial if we turn there just for a moment. If you, if you turn left, you'll go past Luke, you'll go past Mark, and you go to uh, Matthew 28, the very last thing that is said in Matthew's gospel. And many of you over verse 16 will have a subheading there where the translators are helping you with this paragraph, and a lot of the headings will say something like the Great Commission. You'll see that over verse 16. Now, over verse 18, we're told that Jesus came down and said to them, that is the disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Now, many of us know these verses really, really well and may have not even had to have turned there. Probably half have them uh, uh, committed to memory just from virtue of hearing them so often. Uh, we refer to that as the Great 
uh, commission, if you will. And in terms of chronology, uh, this is happening approximately 40 days after the text we've just read in John's gospel. This happens just before the Lord ascends uh, to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he is given this charge to the church again to go out and proclaim the gospel uh, to, uh, to uh, everyone throughout uh, the entire world. And now sometimes when we think of the Great Commission, we have a tendency maybe to think of only this text, and uh, it escapes us that actually there's a Great Commission stated in John's text as well. If we, uh, if we look at John... Um, again, going back to John chapter 20 and verse 21, I think we'll see uh, this great commission uh, proclaimed in verse 21, especially with the words, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And we may have never even noticed that. We may have read through that many times and said, you know, okay, we haven't really picked up on that. Um, but here, what is Jesus doing he is giving, John is, is really, I mean, through by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John is giving us uh, the Great Commission. Now, in terms of context here, uh, just to bring us back up to speed and context, uh, this has been a real roller coaster ride for the disciples, hasn't it? We've been studying this for many weeks. On Thursday night of this week, the disciples find themselves in the upper room with Jesus, enjoying an intimate time around the Passover meal. But things get a little bit sketchy and dicey as Jesus begins to say, you know, listen, one of you is going to betray me. Uh, that creates a lot of um, anxiety in the hearts of the disciples, if you will. And uh, uh, then Jesus talks about departing and where I'm going, you're not going to be able to go. That creates some anxiety. And before the evening is over, Jesus is arrested and everyone scatters. And for the first time in three years, if we're trying to get into the clothes, if you will, of the disciples, for the first time in three years, we find ourselves separated from Jesus, running and fleeing from him instead. And furthermore, as Thursday night gives way to Friday morning, uh, it's the words out that the, uh, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees have charged Jesus with blasphemy. That's a serious charge. It's a charge that comes with a capital offense. And Jesus has been handed over to Pontius Pilate. And then as Friday morning uh, comes in, words out that Pilate has handed Jesus over to be crucified. And Jesus is crucified on Friday morning. And we can only begin to imagine what Friday was like. In fact, this week I've tried to, best I can, to try to focus and think about what was Friday like for the disciples? What would it have been like to have been a disciple on Friday? It's unlikely they got any sleep Thursday night. I think it's probably unlikely they got much sleep Friday. And probably if we want to think about Saturday, they probably haven't had a whole lot of sleep Saturday, but by Saturday you would have just given away to sheer exhaustion. But you would have slept very well. You probably would have woke up, and every time you woke up, you probably would have had a, a sick and nauseous stomach over the events that have taken place. But then Saturday night gives way to Sunday morning, and the women go to the tomb, and they make a discovery that Jesus' body is missing. And Mary comes back to Peter and John and says, they have taken the Lord, and we don't know where they have laid him. And Peter and John go to the tomb, and they find the tomb just as the women had said. And Mary returns to the tomb, and Mary Magdalene meets the risen Jesus. And of course, we have all these reports floating around. And it's not surprising to us that by the time we get to verse 19 of chapter 20, we find the disciples um, meeting together. 
Notice it's on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Last week, I made it a point to drive home that this was what we would call the very first Easter Sunday, if you will, the day that Jesus has been raised, if you will. There they are meeting, and undoubtedly, they're meeting to discuss what in the world is going on, and they're hearing reports where Jesus has appeared now. Um, and uh, we're told in verse 19 that the disciples were uh, there, and for fear of the Jews, the doors were being locked. And we can understand that, can't we? The doors being locked. And, uh, you know, I, last week I brought up disciples. You know, how we, uh, how we answer, you know, if we ask the question, who are the disciples that are gathered in this room, how we answer that question will be determined, especially when we get to verse 23, and I hope to get that far this morning. Um, it will help us determine uh, how to understand verse 23. But let's ask the question right now, who are the disciples in verse 19? And I want to say right from the start here, we can't be dogmatic about this. Um, some will come down and say it's the 10. And someone might say the 10. I thought there were 12. Yeah, there was 12. There were 12 disciples in the, in the immediate inner circle of Jesus. 12 disciples who become apostles. But one has betrayed, right? One has betrayed Jesus, Judas Iscariot. So now he is no longer in the company. He has forfeited his right in that company. That brings you down to 11. We know that Thomas is not there. That brings you down to 10. Now, I think we got good reason to believe, as I said last week, that the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus, uh, they turn around. Jesus reveals himself to them. And they turn around and they go back to Jerusalem. For what reason? To go back and meet with the disciples. And I think we've got good reason to believe that they are there, that they are present. Now, they, Jesus may have appeared to the ten before the, 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 the disciples make it. We just don't know. One thing we have to understand when we're studying Scripture is that when Scripture is precise, we are able to be precise. But when God, in his uh, sovereign wisdom, for whatever reason, hasn't given us that precision, well, then we can't be so precise. And it does us well not to go making and forming theologies, especially theologies that will impact the entire church based on hunches and theories, as has so often been done in the history of the church. Does that make sense? Let us just say this. We've got very good reason to believe that there are more there than simply the tan. But we can't say conclusively. And if God, God could have very easily just given us a list of the names of people who were there. There's, there's lists of names all through the scriptures, aren't there? Uh, but he hasn't done that. But I think the context is actually going to help us make a reasonable choice here as to who's in that room as we go along. But what we do know, the plain thing is, for fear of the Jews, and we need to understand with the word Jews, we need to understand for fear of the Jewish leaders. For fear of the Jewish leadership, they are behind locked doors. They're afraid. But then Jesus appears to them. And last week, we spent a lot of time talking about that. And I'm going to resist the temptation to go back into that because it's, we're not going to get nowhere if we go back into that subject again. So we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Um, but what we do know is Jesus appears to them. He stood among them. He said, peace be with you. I started to open up that uh, peace be with you, that phrase last week. We're, Lord willing, we're going to return to that and probably next week. But for now, we have peace be with you at the end of verse 19. In verse 20, Jesus shows them his hands and his side, and the disciples are glad. They see that it is indeed the Lord who is before them. 
And then Jesus said to them, notice, he says, peace be with you. Again, hopefully next week we're going to look at that again. Uh, But I want to draw your attention to what is said next in verse 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, let's think for a moment. um, If if you're familiar with John's gospel and you've read John's gospel once or twice, uh, and, and if you're thinking about, okay, what is John's gospel about? What are the main themes of John's gospel? If we sat and we just opened up the floor and we just raise your hand, someone raise their hand, we'd probably get a lot of answers. We'd probably certainly get the prologue, right? We'd get, you know, verses, uh, chapter one, verses one through four, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God because there we have one of the clearest statements of the first and second persons of the Trinity, the glorious Trinity. That certainly would come to mind. And verse 14, attended to that, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is the only son come from the Father. Uh, That would certainly get our attention. Or maybe verses 11 and 12, he came to his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. That would probably come up as a theme. Or maybe the great I am sayings would come up. You know, I am the door. I I am the shepherd. You know, I am the bread you know, et cetera, these, these I am sayings. Or maybe someone would bring up the signs. You know, we have the signs. There's just so much. We might say, oh, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or I am the resurrection and the life. There's so many things in our mind that would come up as we're thinking about the great themes of John's gospel. But I am going to take a guess that one of the things that would not come up that is nevertheless a great theme in this gospel, is sent. How many would raise your hand and say, oh, sent? Sent is one of the great themes of John's gospel. Would anyone raise their hand and say that? Well, guess what? You can tell by where I'm going, can't you? One of the great themes of John's gospel is the word sent, S-E-N-T. And I want to, we've been through this before in the course of our study. And if you've been with us through the entire study, you may remember some of this. But let me just quickly take us through a little survey. And I want to demonstrate that to you. And let's start with John 3.16, which certainly would be another thing that would come up as we think about John's gospel. Certainly John 3.16 comes up, doesn't it? Coming to a billboard near you is John 3.16. It's been all over the nation's highways for how many years? We don't see it quite as much as we used to. But some of us remember you couldn't go on any trip without seeing John 3.16 along the highway. You know, it kind of remembers me why, why you're looking for John 3.16, you know. I, I brought this up a couple months ago because earlier in the, in the um, summer, I was cutting grass and I was listening to a sermon. And I don't remember what the title of the sermon was. I don't remember who the speaker was. I don't even remember why I chose to listen to that sermon. But what I do remember is um, the, the, the speaker was practically scolding the, the congregation saying these words. We can find lots of people in the church that have memorized John 3.16, but I can't find one in a hundred that knows any, that has memorized John 3.17. And I, I, I remember when that was a popular thing to say, and I didn't like it then, and I don't like it now. And I'm, as I'm mowing the grass, I'm kind of clutching onto the handle here of the mower. I'm like, will you stop it? There's a reason why people know John 3.16 so well. It's because they see it along the highway. Give the congregation a break here, will you? And I'm thinking to myself, Rick, do I know John 3.17 off by heart? No, actually, I don't. 
(laughs) So I fall into that uh, category. I haven't memorized that one. Um, But again, pardon me for that digression, but we see John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We know that verse quite well, right? John 3.17, for God did not what? Send. Here we have this idea of send. It's easy to miss, isn't it? Especially, and there's truth. John 3.16 does kind of, it does kind of, it, it, it does kind of shade that verse, doesn't it? Because you read, think about it. I've often reflected on this. If, if you had the task of choosing one single verse to put on billboards around this nation's highway system, what verse would you choose? Have you ever thought about that? I've often reflected on this in Bible studies, and I've often reflected upon it uh, on my own. There's so many verses to choose from. What verse would you choose? Well, John 3.16 is a good one, isn't it? I mean, of all of the verses, I can't think of too many that would, be, that would be better. And it does tower over verse 17. And I think in some respects, we miss this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So this idea that God sent his son. And before we leave this, uh, what is meant by God here is certainly the Father. Oftentimes in the New Testament, when we read God, okay, it's making a reference to God the Father. Someone will say, well, Rick, how do you know that? Because his son. His son. I mean, think about it. For the Father did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. You see what I'm talking about? So it's God the Father here that's in view. Does that make sense? Is that okay? All right, take a look at chapter 4, verse 34. I think it's verse 34. Yes. Jesus there says, My food is to do the will of him who what? Who sent me. And uh, there you see that idea of sent. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then in chapter 5, if you look at verse 22 and forward, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. It's a very important verse right there um, that tells us that our relationship and our appreciation of Jesus has everything to do with our relationship and appreciation for the Father, doesn't it? If we're we're fuzzy on the Son, we're going to be fuzzy on the Father as well. Make sense? You can see that. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who what? Who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. You look down to verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verses 36 through 38, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You see this? Don't you start seeing it? It's coming up everywhere, isn't it? We're not going to go through all of these. We'd be going through maybe four or five dozen texts. But look at chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus says, this is the work of God 
that you believe in him whom he has sent? Look down to verses 38. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And we could continue. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chap- we could just continue this. But I think you're getting uh, the, the drift here. By the time we get to John chapter 20 uh, and verse 21, Jesus there says, as the Father has sent me. And what I want us to see here is one of the major themes of John's gospel is that the Father has sent Jesus. Okay? Now, right now, that might seem really abstract, and maybe that's why we don't see it quite so quickly. Right now, it might seem rather abstract, but I hope to flesh that out and make it more concrete as we go along. Let's, let's take a look at verses 22 and 23. These are not easy verses. I think... Uh, they're, 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 they're difficult verses for a number of reasons. If you look at verse 22, right after saying this, Jesus says this. He, he, uh, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Have you ever scratched your head about that verse? I say, well, wait a second. When do they receive the Holy Spirit? Do they receive the Holy Spirit now, or do they receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? Pentecost is 50 days later. And that is when, 50 days, approximately 50 days from right here in our text. And that's when the Holy Spirit comes down upon the, uh, the church, if you will. And one of the uh, distinguishing, one of the major distinguishing factors between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant is the way that the Holy Spirit works in the New Covenant. He comes down and fills the life uh, of believers, if you will, with his presence. And the question is sometimes asked, okay, well, what is going on with the disciples here? Are they receiving the Holy Spirit in this Pentecost sense ahead of time? Uh, well, what exactly is on with this? And every time I think about this verse, I think about an assignment that I had in seminary in one of my classes. And actually, I really loved, I really enjoyed this assignment. Um, we were broke down into uh, twos. We, 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 uh, everyone, uh, er, er, the entire class was broke down into twos. And so you had a partner, and you were given a biblical text, and your job was to uh, study that text, and then you had to go in front of the class and give a biblical exposition of that text. Um, someone in the partnership had to be the spokesperson, but both people had to go forward because after the exposition was given, then the class would ask questions of you of the text, and the uh, professor would ask questions of you. So a little nerve-wracking, but it was such a practical exercise. I mean, this at the end of the day is what the pastor does, isn't it? You study the text so that you can teach the text. And I absolutely love that assignment. I thought it was so useful and so helpful. But one of our class, two of our classmates got this text, verse 22. And they, get, they got up and they gave their exposition. And their position on it was that the, that the disciples are receiving the Holy Spirit in the Pentecost sense ahead of time. And of course, the, the class then was able to give them questions. And this is a position that some people take. And I think you can tell by the way I'm framing this, I don't believe it's true. <laughs> I, I, and, and maybe some of you, I'm looking at facial expressions, you could already tell. You could, there's one really obvious problem with that position, and it's right in front of us. And sometimes we can miss it. But the real problem with that position is we don't see a radical change in the disciples yet. 
If you look down to verse 26, there they are. They're back in presumably the same place, but the doors are locked again. They're still hiding. And that is not their, that is not their um, disposition after Acts chapter 2. And they're radically emboldened after Acts chapter 2. And I think one of the problems we have when we take that position is we have a tendency to make a cookie cutter. We take a cookie cutter approach or uh, we assume a uniform approach to the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think that was the problem my classmates were making. I didn't think it back then, but as I reflect on it now, that's what I think. And what do I mean by that? Well, we read, I mean, you turn the page, you go to Acts, and you go to Acts chapter 2, and again, time-wise, it's only about 50 days later, and the work of the Holy Spirit comes in. And I think there's a presupposition that is false. We read Acts 2, and we think that the work of the Holy Spirit in John 20, verse 22, is exactly like the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. And that's a faulty, that's a faulty assumption, because when we read through Scripture, we find the Holy Spirit working in a diverse amount of ways, don't we? He is God. He doesn't always work the same way. In fact, in the second verse of the Bible, we find him involved in creation, don't we? You only have to read one verse, and then there, boom, creation is a triune work. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all work together in creation. You turn to Acts, and you find the Holy Spirit working in the lives of the artisans who are fabricating the tabernacle and fabricating the tabernacle furnishings. As you continue through, you see the work of the Holy Spirit working out in the lives of the prophets as they give their utterances. You find the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. You find the Holy Spirit coming upon the Messiah in Isaiah 61. Uh, The idea of the kings being anointed uh, also carries that idea. So, and, and this is even before we turn to the pages of the New Testament. So the Holy Spirit, he works in a lot of different ways. So what is going on in verse 22? Others say that this is didactic. What's meant by didactic? Intended to teach. It's intended to teach. That what we have going on here is intended to teach the disciples that they are going to receive the Holy Spirit. And I, I think there's, that's part of the explanation. You know, we could look at the foot washing in John 13, which we studied uh, now. It's been a few months back. But you remember that when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he is assuming a task that is so lowly that it's reserved for the most lonely of servants. And this creates a lot of anxiety in behalf of the disciples. Can you imagine how uncomfortable it would be? And Peter, he has to say something, doesn't he? Because that's what Peter does. He has to say something. And he says, Lord, you, you, you will never wash my feet. And what does Jesus say in response? Unless I wash you, Peter, you can have no part of me. Now, is Peter washed clean simply by Jesus taking a, a, a basin of water and a hand towel and washing his feet? No, uh, it's meant to be didactic. It's, meant to, it's intended to teach. Peter is going to be cleansed, but where will Peter be cleansed? He will be cleansed at the cross. How do we know that? Because, well, Peter's sins, Peter's faith, his union with Christ... His sins are given to Jesus, and Jesus dies on the cross to take Peter's sins away, right? And that's the same for every one of us, isn't it? The moment we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, the moment we trust in Jesus, our sin is given to Jesus. Jesus 
dies, the, takes the penalty and the anguish for our sins. It's almost like Jesus says to Peter, I'll have nothing to do with you suffering for your sins. I love you, Peter. I'm going to suffer for your sins for you. Just put, take Peter's name out and put your own name in if you're in Christ this morning. If you're not in Christ this morning, come to him, please. Um, that's the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? But the foot washing teaches. The foot washing is instructive, and it's pointing to that. And I think in many ways this is the same. But I also think there's a movement of the Holy Spirit here in verse 22. As Calvin has said, you know, in verse 22, we have a sprinkling of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, we have a saturation, if you will. Um, I think it's a good way of putting it. Now, if you get to verse 23, notice this. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, what do we do with that? Some of you are smiling. I say, oh, well, we're waiting to hear. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? Let's, let's, I mean, on the face of it, it appears that Jesus is giving men. It appears that Jesus is giving men. Uh, the um, uh, prerogative, if you will, um, to either forgive sins or withhold that forgiveness, doesn't it? I mean, after all, what does it say? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, the relationship to verse 23 and 19 that I keep pointing to is um, sometimes those who hold that position, that the ability to forgive sins or withhold forgiveness is given to ministers, for example. Uh, sometimes to strengthen that argument, people will say, well, it's the ten. It was given to the ten. The ten are the, those who are pre- present in the upper room. Uh, if you look at verse 23 again, Jesus says, if you, and the question being before us is, who are the you? Is it the ten? If it's strictly the ten and there's no one else, then this is something that's given to the apostles, and then the argument goes like this. This is something that was given to the apostles, and then the apostles passed that down throughout the church ages. Okay, well, what do we do with that? The first thing that we need to understand is whatever interpretation that we come from or we, come, we conclude with in verse 23 has to be able to withstand the scrutiny of the teaching of the rest of Scripture, doesn't it? Has Jesus given to fallible men the ability to forgive sins or withhold that forgiveness? I'm going to answer emphatically not. And it's a scary proposition to think so. First of all, I think a lot of times we only think of the first half of this. If we take that position, we think, okay, uh, a minister or a priest is given the ability to forgive the sins. But if you're going to take the first half of this verse, then you've got to take the second half of this verse. You see what I'm talking about? If that is the meaning of this verse, that it is given to men to forgive sins of any, then we have to take the second part that it's been given to men to withhold forgiveness. And someone say, that's a little frightening. Yes, it's, a, it's quite frightening. It's quite frightening. And I don't think that that will withstand the teaching of Scripture. For one, some of us are familiar in Luke 5, for example, the story of uh, uh, Jesus teaching in a house, and it's so packed that nobody can get in. And here come these these folks. They're bringing their friend who's a paralytic, and they can't get in the house, so they go up on the roof, and they dig through the roof, and they lower him down in front 
of Jesus. And, and Jesus says something that's really shocking and surprising. He says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Probably not what the paralytic was wanting to hear first. He's probably wanting to hear you're healed. But he says your sins are forgiven. And what do Jesus' opponents say? Who is this who forgives sins? No one can forgive sins but God alone. Listen, friends, if, if someone sins against me, I can forgive them. But how, how am I to forgive crimes that are committed against God? Well, someone said, well, Rick, then what's the teaching of this? Because on the surface of it, it seems to be that Jesus is handing this over to men. Well, I, I want to, I wanna, let's, let's stop for a moment. And let's go back to verse 19, and let's ask, who are the disciples? It's left open. And I think in the context of it all, there's three things that are important in studying Scripture. Context, context. Anybody know what the third thing is? I thank you for continually laughing at that joke. I mean, every time I tell it, somebody laughs. Thank you so much. Um, it's context. And the context is the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is given to the church. Does that make sense? So what's the meaning? Well, what is the Great Commission? The Great Commission is to proclaim the gospel to every man, woman, and child. And I, trust me, and you all know, I don't need to tell you, when you share the gospel, what happens lots of the time? Sometimes people, they'll, they'll be nice and they'll listen to you, but you can tell they're really not that into it, right? Sometimes people will say, you know, enough of that. I don't want to hear it. They'll reject it, stiff-armed reject it. But if you do it enough and you do it often enough, eventually someone's going to receive it. And I'll tell you, when someone receives the gospel, it's one of the most joy. I love evangelism. You all know that. You know my passion for evangelism. I absolutely, if my favorite, my, one of my favorite things to do is to share the gospel with people. And when someone responds to the gospel, when you see somebody responding to the gospel and someone saying, yeah, you know what, this makes sense, this really makes sense, and you see them beginning to embrace Jesus, it is one of the most exciting things, isn't it? And then as they begin to talk and they, they well, you know, I think maybe I ought to be baptized. We just had a baptism here just a few weeks ago, didn't we? And what did we do after the baptism? We celebrate it. And one of the things that we, we as a church, one of the things that we wanted to get across to the candidate who was baptized, that is, if you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Right? Now, Converse to that, contrary-wise to that, we could equally say to somebody who is rejecting the gospel that their sins are not forgiven, couldn't we? But you see, at the end of the day, it is not us who is offering the forgiveness or withholding the forgiveness. We're simply the instrument in God's hands. And I would submit to you that that is the meaning of this text. Does that, does that follow Okay. It's, it's just a natural consequence of sharing the gospel, that as we share the gospel, there's going to be some who are going to embrace the gospel. 
And in a few minutes, we're going to come to the table. And what do I say most often? Almost every time I officiate the Lord's Supper, I always say one of my favorite things to do as a minister of the gospel is to pronounce what's known as the assurance of pardon. And what is the assurance of pardon? If you confess your sins, God is righteous and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You see, we, not, I'm not the only one that has the, the, the privilege of being able to say that. You can say that to your friends at the water cooler at work. If one of your friends puts their faith and their trust in Jesus, don't be quick to say that. Give it a little time to be sure that they really are tracking with the Lord. Don't give them a sense of false assurance. But you can say to them, you can open up your Bibles to 1 John 1, 9 and say to them, listen, here it is in writing, here it is in writing. If you confess your sins to Jesus, and you, you turn to Jesus who confess your sins to him, he is righteous and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you can also say, and sometimes it's helpful to say this in love, that if you refuse, you're still in your sins. You see, if you don't mind, you don't need to turn there because I don't want to do that to you. I'm going to do it really quick. But, you know, back to the pastor that's given his congregation grief because they don't know John 3.17. Well, if we're going to start that, um, John 3.18, how about it? You know, John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the, uh, of the only Son of God. You see there? If you believe, you're not condemned. If you believe, there's no, there's no condemnation. But if you don't believe, there is condemnation. I quote John 3.19 a lot. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Therein lies the problem. Therein lies the obstacle. We have to be torn from that which we love, namely sin. We have to be torn from sin in order to embrace Jesus. That's the problem. Now, let me put this together. Uh, real quick. Go back to verse 21. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And the what I want you to leave here with this morning is the importance of this word sent. And right now, I, I imagine it probably is still somewhat abstract. So let's flesh it out right now. First thing I want to say about this is Jesus doesn't pass the baton. Say what? Jesus doesn't pass the baton. Now, what do I mean by a baton? If we were in, engaged in what's known as a relay race, we would have team members. And the first team member would run to a certain point where a second team member's waiting. The first team member would have a baton, he'd be running. And then he would pass the baton to the next runner. And then he goes and the first runner goes and sits down on the bench while the next runner takes it, and so forth. And Jesus is not doing that. Jesus is not passing the baton. Jesus is not saying to his disciples, listen, I got this crucifixion stuff all done. It's behind me. I'm going up to heaven. It's up to you now. If you look at the tense of verb right there, it's, it's, it's perfect. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And in the Greek, it's a perfect tense. What's a perfect tense mean? It means it's a completed action. Perfect tense means completed action. We have a linguistic, a linguistic, a, ling, a linguist. I can't even get the word out in our midst this morning, so I better get this right. But a, a perfect tense 
you know, comes from the word Latin perfectum, right? Which means complete. And what it does is it describes an action that has been done in the past that has a present effect. I have a valve. I, wa- uh, I plumbed a valve in the garage of our home uh, to a uh, line that goes to an exterior wall where there's a spigot coming out to hook our hose up. Now, why did I put that valve there? Why put a second valve? So that I can turn that valve off and then let the water out of the, um, out of the uh, hose and don't have to worry about the pipe freezing. So in the spring, um, I turn that on. When I turn that water on, that's a past completed action that has a present effect. Okay, the water's on. You can hook the hose up and run it. Now, when I turn it off, there's another past action, completed action that has a present effect. The water's off. Does that make sense? Jesus has been sent. Past completed action that has a present effect. Jesus has been sent. Jesus isn't passing a baton. Jesus is continuing his ministry through his people. Why is sent so important? Because Jesus is the sent one who is sending. And as Jesus sends us, Jesus invites us not to start a work entirely new, but to be part of a work that he has been doing for now for almost 2,000 years. Does that make sense? Now, it gets better. Because Jesus is the sent one, because Jesus is sending, we have all of his resources in our ministry. You follow me? This is an empowering truth because our ministry in Jesus is is his ministry working through us. You know, we could say in a sense that Tri-State Community Church started 14 years ago, April 2008, in a living room in a home in New Cumberland with about four or five people gathered around. That's a true fact. But in another sense, the ministry of Tri-State Community Church is, you know, the ministry that is taking place in Tri-State Community Church is a ministry that's been going on for 2,000 years. We've just now been invited to be part of it. And therefore, we have the resources of Christ, don't we? We have the resources of Christ, and these are our marching orders. I mean, this is our authority for doing evangelism. I'll leave you with this last thought. Sometimes people in our culture will, um, will suggest that it's wrong of us to do evangelism. Has anybody met that objection? You know, uh, I, I have just not very long ago, uh, continually, where people say, you know, um, they were kind about it. They weren't, being, they weren't being unkind about it, but they were basically saying that um, we don't think it's right that a person of one religion should try to, you know, take their religion and make it someone else's religion. And you'll hear people say that in our culture. And what is, I'll give you my standard response to that. My standard response to that is I'm only doing what I'm told, that if I quit, I'm actually being unfaithful to Christ. And we could go to John chapter 20 and verse 21 to make that. You see, as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus is sending us. So a failure on my part to do evangelism or a failure on my part to be part of evangelism is complete unfaithfulness to my Lord. And that's the, the you know, and that, I, I, you know, the last guy that talked to me about that found that somewhat satisfying. I said, so your problem really isn't with me as much as it is with Jesus. And you really need to make your mind up where you're at with him. Because someday you're going to have to deal with where you're at with him. 
We're all going to have to deal with where we're at with Jesus. Our knees are going to bow to his lordship one way or the other. But I don't want to leave on that note. Let's leave on a good note. Have you bowed your knees to the Lord? I know many of you have. And if you've bowed your knees to the lordship of Christ, you've got the brightest of futures, don't you? Amen. Heavenly Father, we so thank you that we are sent just like you in many respects, not exactly like you. You are the Holy One of Israel. You are both God and man. You are the Redeemer. You are the Mediator. You are the Savior. But in your love, you've invited us to be part of building your church, which you love. And you invite us to be part of this wonderful, wonderful thing, this great commission. We thank you for being part of this, Father. And we pray, O Lord, you'd strengthen our weak knees and our legs for this work. That, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would use us. And, Father, we pray that you would give the increase. As we leave here this morning, as we go out and we, we talk to our friends and our family members and our loved ones and our neighbors and everyone around who ever listened to us, Father, we pray that you'll work in their hearts and work in their lives. And what a beautiful thing it is when people come to know you and they come to see you and we see the the burden being lifted from their hearts and from their shoulders. It is such a wonderful, wonderful thing, Father. And we pray that you will do this often in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.